Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Well, with no further ado, let's pray and get into our study of God's Word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who loves us and who wants to speak to us. Lord, help us that we would be people who have a desire and an openness and an attentiveness to your word. And Lord, we pray that as you speak to us, we would receive it. And Lord, that truly we would live successful lives according to your definition of success. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 2005, and I was living in Hungary. My wife and I were living in Hungary, and I was frustrated Guys, I was really frustrated. My wife, Rosemary, and I were living in Hungary. We had just moved to a new city and started a new church. And uh, we had a group of people who were, who were gathering. We had a place to meet. And we had started Sunday morning services. But I was frustrated. I was frustrated because the church wasn't growing as fast as I had hoped that it would. I was frustrated because people on our leadership team were fighting and not getting along with each other. There were conflicts, and I had to, you know, mediate them. There were even conflicts, not just with our people on our leadership team. There were conflicts with people in the church. They had issues with each other. Uh, I was frustrated because at one point, we found out that the reason why, you know, we would check our offering box every week. Did we get any offerings? And it was always empty. And then I found out that the reason why our offering box was empty is because one of our regular attendees of the church was stealing our offering every week. So that was a, a, that was a bummer, right? Like I was uh, frustrated. I was, I was actually kind of miserable, to be honest. Um, I wasn't nice to be around. Because here's the thing. I wanted to, su- I wanted to succeed so badly as a missionary and as a church planter. But at that point, I really didn't feel like a success. I felt like a failure. I felt like, you know, that's who I was. I was failing, and therefore I was a failure. And my wife, Rosemary, you know, she noticed this frustration on me. And at one point, she told me something. She said, you know, Nick, here's what you're failing to understand. She said, you think that your work, what you do, is who you are. She said, no, 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 listen. Your work is not who you are. This is just what you do. And what God has called you to do is to be faithful with what he's put in front of you. Your job is not to wish that you had something else. Your job is to be faithful with what God has put in front of you and called you to do. Now, that might sound simple, but when she said that, honestly, that was probably a turning point in my life. It's one of those moments I look back on and I say, that was a moment in which my thinking was challenged and my thinking changed. And I realized that I had been thinking about success in all the wrong ways. You know, I think that all of us want to be successful, right? We certainly don't want the opposite of that. The opposite of success is failure. Nobody wants to be a failure, but we we all want to be successful. But we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be successful? Well, the Oxford Dictionary gives us two definitions of the word successful. Number one, successfulness means accomplishing an aim or a purpose. Number two, successfulness is defined, according to Oxford Dictionary, as having achieved popularity, profit, or distinction. Now, listen, those are two very different definitions of success, aren't they? The first one basically says, if you do the thing that you wanted to do, then you're 
you've succeeded. So if your goal for the day was to buy a cheeseburger and you bought that cheeseburger, you succeeded. That's success. But the other definition of success is very different. That definition says that success means attaining some very certain specific things. And those things are popularity, profit, and distinction, or we might refer to that as praise. So popularity, profit, and praise. And this definition, I think that second one there, is really the one that comes to most people's minds when they use the word success or successful. Are you successful? Well, what does that mean? Well, we generally tend to think in these terms in people in the world. Success is defined by being popular, being profitable, and being praised. So the problem is, though, if you look around at the world and you notice the people who have attained these things, people who we would say, well, according to this definition of success, they are successful. They've attained these things. Here's the problem. Many of those people are not nearly as happy and fulfilled in their lives as you might expect them to be. For example, one successful person I read put it this way. They said, I have everything I ever wanted, and I'm absolutely miserable. Well, wait a second. If that's success, then why is this person miserable? Actor Jim Carrey said it this way. He said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they would know that that's not the answer. You know, many people who succeed in business or in politics, they oftentimes also fail in certain other areas of their lives. And here's what I find really interesting. If success is defined in this way, as attaining popularity and profitability and the praise of others, well, then by that definition of success, you know who's not successful? Jesus. You know Jesus would not be successful according to that definition of success. Jesus never had a lot of money. He was rejected. He was despised. And ultimately, he was captured and killed. By these measures of success, Jesus would not be considered successful in the eyes of the world. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he challenged our common ways of thinking about success. Jesus said, what will it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? In other words, you can have popularity and profit and distinction, the praise of others, and still be completely empty in your soul. What Jesus is telling us is that we need to seriously reevaluate what it actually means to be successful because the measures of success that most people in the world are using to define success, they aren't the right ones. They aren't good enough, Jesus would tell us. So what then does it mean to be successful in God's eyes? What are the things that God looks at and he says, if you do these things, then you will actually be successful. If you accomplish these things, then you can lay your head down at night and you can truly rest knowing that you have accomplished your purpose in life. Well, many of the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth they had totally bought into the world's definition of success, that the goal of life is to attain popularity and profitability and being praised by others. But what Paul is going to show them here in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians is that as followers of Jesus, they need a whole new definition of success. They need a whole new way of thinking about what success is and what success means because the world's definition of success is fleeting, it is fickle, 
But as soon as you think you've taken hold of it, it slips between your fingers like sand and you are constantly chasing after it. In the end, it will leave you empty. And the pursuit of success in this way will actually eat you alive. But success, as is defined by God, his kind of success is actually attainable. It's something you can actually attain, and it leads to good things both for you and for other people, and it leads to glory for God. So what is this measure of success? That's the title of today's message, The Measure of Success. And what we're going to see in this passage, here's our takeaway truth, our summary sentence, the measures of success in God's kingdom are faithfulness, and fruitfulness. Write that down. Take it with you as you go. Remember it so that when you leave here, this thought sticks in your mind. You remember our study today. The measures of success in God's kingdom are faithfulness and fruitfulness. We're going to take that sentence and we're going to break it down as we study this passage today. So let's talk about the first part. The measures of success in God's kingdom. Paul begins chapter 4 by saying this in verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. The Corinthian Christians had a problem. Their problem was that many of them thought that they were really spiritual when in fact they were just really prideful. Right? They thought they were really spiritual. In reality, they were just really prideful. And in their pride, the Corinthian Christians were competing with one another over who was the most spiritual. That's the irony of it. In their pride, they're competing with one another over who's more spiritual than the other, right? Like, like children arguing on the playground. And this led to a bunch of division in their church. Factions were forming in the church that were fighting against one another. They were criticizing each other and putting each other down in order to assert that they were more spiritual, that they were superior to the others. And this division was hurting the church, and it was holding them back from fulfilling their God-given purpose as a fellowship of believers and followers of Jesus. So Paul the Apostle wrote this letter to the Christians there in Corinth in order to address this problem and to correct them. Now, one of the main things the Corinthian Christians were doing and dividing over was their view of the Christian celebrities of that day, if you will, right? In other words, they were dividing over which apostles and which Christian leaders they identified themselves as followers of. Some said, well, we're followers of Paul, and that's why we're better than you. Others said, well, we're followers of Apollos, and that's why we're better than you. Others said, no, 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 we're followers of Peter, and that's why we're better than you. Basically, they were treating the apostles and Christian leaders like celebrities, kind of like in high school, right? You have different cliques, different factions that form. I remember when I was in high school, you know, you had to be part of a group. You're a jock, or you're a punk rocker, or you're a skater, or you're a gamer, right? And the skaters hate the jocks, and the jocks hate the gamers, right? And it goes on and on and on. Well, this is the kind of thing that was going on in the Corinthian church. It was like high school, but worse, right? Because they were doing it on a spiritual level. And we know that one of the things they were dividing over was uh, which of the famous, well-known Christian preachers of that day they identified as adherents or followers of. And in, in chapter 3, which we studied last week, Paul spoke into the situation. He said, guys, this is ridiculous. You're dividing over us, but we're not divided. Like, we don't share your opinion about this. We're on the same team. And look what he says now in chapter 4, verse 1. He goes, here's how you ought to regard us. Not as celebrities, but as servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. 
A Christian leader is first and foremost a servant. Sometimes we use this phrase, right? And we, we use it inside the church, but also it's found its way into the business place as well. We talk about servant leadership. Now, do you know where that idea of servant leadership comes from? It comes from Jesus. It really does. Because in Jesus, here we have the ultimate example of servant leadership. That God, the creator of the world, the Lord of the universe, came to us in the person of Jesus in order to serve us by teaching us and, importantly, by doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus said this about himself. He said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus told his disciples, this is how I lead, and this is how I want you to lead as well. He said this, I want you to, to follow my lead in this practice. He told them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles like to lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. True leadership, Jesus said, isn't about ruling over others and putting others under your thumb. Rather, true leadership is about getting under others and lifting them up. Lifting them up. True leadership isn't about ruling over others. It's about lifting others up. That is what Jesus did for us, and that's what we are called to do as followers of Jesus in every area of our lives where God has given you some degree of influence or leadership. Maybe you're a leader in your workplace or in your school. Maybe God has given you influence on your team or in your home. Remember, your calling as a leader is not to rule over others, but rather to lift others up and to serve them. I like what Paul said in his second letter to the Corinthians on this same topic. He said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, It is not that we have lordship over your faith, but rather we are helpers of your joy, helpers of your joy. In other words, we aren't here to lord over you. We are here to serve you. This kind of thinking is pretty radical in our day and age, but understand that it was even more radical at the time when Jesus first spoke these words and when the early Christians tried to live them out. You know, the Greco-Roman culture despised menial labor. They despised anything that was considered, you know, too low on the totem pole for them to do, beneath a person, right? Menial labor. So the goal of every person in that society was to move up the ladder so that you could become more powerful. And the measure of success in, in Greco-Roman culture was if you could get other people to do your work for you so you didn't have to do that work yourself. That was the goal. That's how you knew that you have finally arrived, that you were now the boss, the manager, the guy who tells other people what to do so that you don't have to do it yourself and you can just put your feet up on the desk and watch them work. That was the goal. They considered that to be leadership. And yet in contrast to that, Jesus said, no, true leadership isn't about bossing other people around. It isn't about having other people serve you. True leadership is about using your power, skills, and authority to serve others. Using your power, skills, and authority to serve others, to lift them up, to help them flourish, and to help them progress. Now, here's what's really interesting about this verse, verse 1 here in chapter 4. The common word in Greek for servant is the word doulos. 
doulos. And this is the word, doulos, that Jesus used when he talked about being a servant. It's the word that Paul generally uses when he talks about being a servant of God. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul uses a different word for slave or for servant than the common Greek word for servant. He uses the word, instead of doulos, he uses the word hyperedus, hyperedus, which literally means an under rower. This was a specific kind of servant called an under rower. And here's what a hyperedus was in practice. A hyperedus was a person who served below the deck on an old galley ship, the kind that were moved by a bunch of servants or slaves under the deck who would literally row oars to move a ship forward. That was what they were called in Greek, hyperedus. And Paul's saying this, this is what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom. Paul is saying that it means being an under rower on a ship. Now think about that. It's, a, it's an interesting metaphor because the under rowers on the ship, they're not the captains of the ship, are they? They don't set the course for the ship. They don't steer the ship. They don't choose the direction. Rather, they take their orders from the captain, and their job is to move those oars so they can move that ship forward to the place where the captain wants the ship to go. Now, that's a great picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He is the captain of the ship, not you, not me. He's the captain of the ship. Your job and my job is to row the ship and to move it forward to where he wants it to go. So to be a leader under Jesus is to be a servant of God and a servant of others who's moving the ship forward, following the directions of our captain, Jesus, where he wants it to go. That brings us to the next part of our sentence. The measures of success in God's kingdom are, first of all, faithfulness. That's the first measure of success in God's kingdom, faithfulness. Now, not, not only are Christian leaders to be regarded as servants, Paul says in verse 1, they are also to be regarded as stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, a steward was a special type of servant who was the manager of a wealthy person's estate. The manager of a wealthy person's estate. That's what a steward was. For example, if you've ever watched the Batman movies, you pay attention, they have this guy named... Uh, Alfred. You guys ever seen Alfred? Right? Alfred works at Wayne Manor, and he's like the head butler. And, uh, you know, like Bruce Wayne's never at home, apparently, or never really doing anything around the house. And so, like, Alfred takes care of everything, and he seems to be pretty well paid, too, right? So Alfred works for the Wayne family. He's like the head butler. He's in charge of making sure that everything gets done. If there are other servants, they report to Alfred. He's like the head of the servants. The other servants report to him. And this is a good picture of what a steward is. It's the person who's hired to manage somebody's property or their finances in some cases, maybe in some cases to manage the businesses that they own. And it's an interesting metaphor uh, in this way. Because think about this. In relation to the master, a steward is a servant. But in relation to the other servants, the steward is like a master. So what Paul is saying is that Christian leaders are servants who have been entrusted by God to manage God's resources and to lead the other servants of God. But here's what's really important. The things that a steward manages do not belong to the steward. They belong to the master. 
The steward only manages them and oversees them. They can't just do whatever they want with those things. They don't have that kind of discretion. They must act in accordance with the will and desires of the master because they're managing the master's things. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, Jesus told a story, a parable, about a dishonest steward. Now, this steward had been entrusted with managing certain things that belonged to the master, but the steward was not doing a very good job. He was mismanaging the things which the master had entrusted to his care. And so one day, the master called the steward to come into his office and give an account of what he had done with what the master had entrusted to him. And what Jesus is telling us with this parable, he's saying this, that is a picture of your life. That's a picture of your life. You are a steward. Everything you have has been entrusted to you by God, and one day you are going to have to give an account to God of what you did with what he put in your care. Listen, God has given you a lot of things, hasn't he? He's given you time. He's given you talents, abilities. He's given you money and material possessions. He's given you a mind and a body. He's given you some degree of influence in your life. And the question is, what are you doing with what he has given you? Because one day you are going to stand before God and he will ask you to give an account of your stewardship, whether you have used the things that he gave you in accordance with his will and desires and for his purposes. I think as Americans, we tend to push back against this a little bit because it's so ingrained in our thinking that nobody can tell me what to do. Everything I have is mine. I worked for it. I earned it. I got it. I don't have to answer to anybody for what I do with it. My money is mine. My life is mine. My body is mine. And nobody can tell me what to do with it or what not to do with it. But what Jesus is saying is, well, that's not exactly the case. Okay? And and the whole Bible would say the same thing. That everything you have was given to you by God. In fact, you don't even belong to yourself, right? You uh, have a debt before God. You owe everything you have and everything you are to him, and you are accountable to him for what you do with what he's given you. Look at what it says in Psalm 24, verse 1. It says, everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to God. That includes you. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they tried to trap him with kind of a no-win question about taxes. Who doesn't love taxes? So they come to Jesus and they say, tell us what you think, teacher. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, of course, this is a trick question. If Jesus says yes, then they'll kind of throw him under the bus and accuse him of supporting the Roman occupation. If Jesus says no, then they'll turn him into the Roman authorities as somebody who is a a usurper, somebody who is an insurrectionist and encouraging people to rebel against the Roman occupation. So it's a no-win situation. But look at how Jesus responds there in Matthew chapter 28. It says that Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness, now keep that in word in mind, likeness, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now this is a really important 
point that Jesus is making. And if you think that he's just talking about taxes, you're missing the point completely. They asked him a question about taxes, but he took that question and he said, I don't even want to talk about taxes. Let's talk about something more important. Remember, it says that this coin bears the likeness of Caesar. Okay, because the coins in that day had a picture of Caesar on them, much as our coins have a picture of dead presidents on them. Okay, so their coin had a picture of Caesar on them. And, and think about this. What does the Bible say about you? Do you bear the likeness of someone? Of course you do. The Bible says that you are created in the image of God, and you bear the image of God. As a human being, you are an image bearer of God. He created you and endowed you with his likeness. In other words, you bear the image of God. Therefore, give to God what belongs rightly to God, which is yourself. Whose image do you bear? You bear the image of God. Therefore, you belong to him. And Jesus is saying, give to God what is God's. You belong to God, so make sure that you give yourself wholly over to him. Everything you have, from your health to your time, your talents, your intellect, your possessions, your finances, at the end of the day, all of those things were given to you by God, and you are merely a steward of those things. And one day, you will give an account for what you did with the things that God gave you. That's why Paul tells us here in verse 2, the measure of success in God's kingdom is faithfulness. So the question for all of us to ask ourselves today is this. Are you being faithful with what God has entrusted to you? Are you being faithful with what God has entrusted to you? Are you being faithful to use it and invest it in ways that are according to his will and desires and which further his mission and his purposes? Paul says specifically that he is a steward of the mysteries of God, the mysteries of God. In other words, knowing the good news about Jesus, understanding who Jesus is and understanding what Jesus did to save us, that knowledge is something that God has entrusted to you, not only for your sake. Yes, it is for your sake, but it's not only for your sake. Once you have received that message, that news, that understanding, now you are a steward of the mysteries of God. Friends, Jesus died for you. But he didn't die only for you. You know that? He died for you, but he didn't die only for you. There are other people out there who need to hear the good news about Jesus, and God wants them to hear it from you. You can't keep this good news to yourself. Once you've received this good news of the gospel, this understanding of who Jesus is, you are now a steward of that information, the steward of the mysteries of God, which means you have a responsibility to be sharing that with other people. God has entrusted it to you so that you will do that. Listen, whether or not you are ever popular in your life, whether or not you are ever profitable and wealthy in your life, whether or not you are ever praised by other people in your life, God is calling you to be faithful. That is the measure of success in God's eyes. Were you faithful with what I gave you? That's the question he's going to ask you. Did you use those things according to my will and my desires and according to my purposes? That is the measure of success. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am uh, not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart." 
You know, the thing about judging people, they say this, never judge somebody until you've walked a mile in their shoes, because that way, when you judge them, you'll already be a mile away from them, and you'll have their shoes. But listen, in the Corinthian church, remember, there were some people who liked Paul, and there were some people who didn't like Paul. And Paul says, you know what? I'm not overly concerned with your opinion of me. My primary concern is with what God thinks about me. Is God pleased with me? What is God's estimation of me? You know, we often judge people prematurely or without knowing the full story. But God sees everything. And the goal of our lives, Paul says, should be that one day when you stand before God, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be the goal of our lives. So that brings us to the next and final part of our sentence, which is this. The measures of success in God's kingdom are faithfulness and also fruitfulness. Look at what it says in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And what, if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul's goal in writing this letter is that they would not go beyond anything that is written. In other words, Paul's goal in this letter is to help them to stop thinking in a worldly mindset and to begin thinking in a biblical or scriptural mindset. That's what he's trying to help them do with this letter. And now in order to do that, look at what Paul does in verses 8 through 11. He is going to get sarcastic. So if you like sarcasm, you'll like this next part. This is called Paul's sarcastic rebuke. Let's read it from verses 8 through 11. Understand that he's being sarcastic here. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings, and we wish that you did reign so that we might rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffed and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What is Paul's point here in, with these sarcastic remarks? Here's the point of Paul's sarcastic rebuke. It is to show the Corinthians that in contrast to their way of thinking, the way that they've been thinking and acting, he said, look at the difference between your way of thinking and the way of Jesus. The things that you've been pursuing and what it really means to follow Jesus. He says, you guys want to be rich. You guys want to have power. You want to be popular. You want other people to think that you're cool and awesome. But Paul says, guys, this is not the way of Jesus. You're pursuing success in the way that the world defines success, not in the way of Jesus. To follow Jesus means to take up your cross and die to yourself. It means to surrender your whole life to God. It means to forgive like Jesus forgave. It means to love like Jesus loved. It means to serve like Jesus served. If you live like that, 
If you walk in the way of Jesus, you might never be rich. You might never be popular. Other people might look at you and think that you are weak. You may never be successful in the eyes of the world, but you will be successful in the eyes of God. He will be pleased with you, and you will be walking in the way that truly leads to life and joy and peace, both now and for eternity. You know, Jesus gave us another measure for success, and that is fruitfulness. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he said in verse eight of that same chapter, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's not only faithfulness that's a measure of success in God's eyes, but also fruitfulness. And I think it's important to add that point in here, and that's, here's why. Because if we only think that the measure of success in God's eyes is faithfulness, well, we can be inclined to think that what that means is that we are not to mess up. Faithfulness just basically means do the stuff and don't lose anything. Don't lose any ground. Don't lose anything. Just don't mess up. But fruitfulness is different than faithfulness in this sense, that it implies growth and health and life, right? Fruitfulness implies that you're taking new ground, you're making progress. And so as we stay connected to Jesus, faithfully stewarding the things that he has entrusted to us, there will be growth and progress in your life and through the things that you do. Now, sometimes that growth and progress may be something that only takes place inside of you. That's okay. That's fruit. That's fruitfulness. Other times, God might work through you to produce fruit through your life outside of you, right? In the lives of other people or in other areas. Paul says in verses 14 through 16, he goes on to say this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but rather to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, but I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then to be imitators of me, to be imitators of me. Now, sometimes, listen, because we're aware of our own shortcomings, we, we sometimes say to people, hey, don't, don't look to me, look to Jesus, right? I'll just let you down. I'll just disappoint you. Jesus will never disappoint you, though, right? Like, I'm going to make mistakes, but Jesus never will. I'm imperfect, but Jesus is perfect. So don't look at me. Don't follow me. Rather, look to Jesus and follow him. And I totally understand why somebody would say that. In fact, I would say sometimes that is the right thing for us to say to people. But I want you to look at what Paul says here, because it's really challenging uh, for us as we look at what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says this. He doesn't just say, look to Jesus, not to me. Follow Jesus, not me. No, instead he says, imitate me and follow me as I follow Christ. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, he was living in such a way that he could look at somebody in the eye and say, look, if you take my hand and walk with me, walk alongside me, then you'll be going in the right direction. You'll be following Jesus. If you imitate me, you'll be on the right track. I may not be perfect, but I'm following Jesus. And if you follow me as I follow Jesus, you'll be on the right path. Friends, I want to challenge you to live in such a way that you could honestly look somebody in the eye and not just say, don't look at me, look at Jesus, but actually say, 
Imitate me as I follow Jesus. Let me show you what it looks like to follow Jesus in practice in Longmont, Colorado, in the 21st century. This is what it looks like. Imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. What does it mean to live a truly successful life? Well, Paul has shown us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that the measures of success in God's kingdom are faithfulness and fruitfulness. Even though Jesus was not successful according to the world's standards of success, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was absolutely successful by God's measures of success. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus declared that he had been faithful to do all that God had called him to do. And on the cross, as he hung there, he declared, it is finished. Jesus was faithful. And the Bible tells us that Jesus continues to be faithful, to intercede before, uh, before the Father on our behalf. And even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Friends, that's really good news for people like you and people like me. Because the fruit of Jesus' labors is our salvation. He has taken us who were sinners, who, were, who have fallen short, who were destined for wrath, and by his faithful work on our behalf, through his life and death and resurrection and his continued intercession on our behalf, he has transformed us into children of God, forgiven, redeemed, and having the promise of eternal life. In order for that message to not just be good news in general, but for it to be good news for you individually and specifically, you have to respond to that message in faith by putting your trust not in yourself, but in Jesus who lived and died and for your sake was raised again. And when you do that, you get a new identity and you get a new destiny in Jesus. So as we look to Jesus, may we live our lives knowing this, that the measures of success in God's kingdom are faithfulness and fruitfulness. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, thank you that even though we fall short, Lord, you succeeded and you have succeeded on, on our behalf. Lord, you are our Savior, our hope, our salvation. Lord, help us that we would not put our trust in ourselves, in our own abilities in any way, but that our trust would be wholly and totally in you. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.